Hey everyone, Terry here. It's dusk on the shores of the Green River here in Utah. There's a soft tickle of water through the reeds here at our campsite on the river's edge. And a beam of low evening light is casting a spotlight on the orange and red wall of Wingate sandstone that towers above the opposite shore. This calm stretch of river continues on its course to my left, south into Canyonlands National Park. My brother and I just finished cycling the 100-mile loop tour on the White Rim Trail. Not an easy endeavor on a one-day push, but now I'm thinking, oh, so worth it. Beer in hand, soaking it all in here on the shore. An epic bike ride with amazing geology has got me thinking about our next guest here on the podcast. Before I met Dr. Steve Boyer, I knew he was one of the contributing physicians on the very first American medical expedition to Everest, and that he built a reputation for putting up speed ascent records on Mount Hood after riding his bike there from Portland. We used to live in the same neighborhood, and Steve and I met on a few occasions to cycle the hills of our home, and I got to know and respect him, even more so for leading a life of service outside of the hospital and into war-torn Africa, then Afghanistan. One of the gifts of producing this podcast is the opportunity to catch up with mentors whose life experiences exemplify a journey I'm trying to share on this podcast, a life springing from adventure and maturing into activism. This one was actually the first one I ever recorded after I came up with this wild idea on a road trip to Mount Rainier. So thanks to Steve for the patience to sit down with me on my first run. It gave me the inspiration to stay with the idea, the nonprofit, and the podcast. Now, a year later. Hope you enjoy. Born from our experiences as explorers. And forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. What really keyed me into the potential impact on my family, larger than the impact it was already having, uh, came on uh, K2. Mm-hmm. Um, this was an American expedition. We were trying to climb the south-southwest pillar. He and I were the only fathers on the expedition, and I began to weigh things in a new way and waited on the on the side of feeling like this was narcissistic to continue to put myself at risk for this goal when uh, what I was risking was them more than myself. I don't know if uh, many people know what Taliban means. Uh, it's the plural of Talib and a Talib as a student. Be open and, and be prepared to jump at challenges. There's uh, luck, but luck is just the uh, interface of preparation and opportunity. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast, and I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to episode 11 with Dr. Steve Boyer.
In his work as a physician, geologist, and professional mountaineer, Steve has traveled extensively on every continent. He's participated on eight Himalayan and four polar expeditions and brought his skill as an emergency physician to K2, Annapurna, and Everest. In times of crisis, Steve has responded to Darfur and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and more. And most recently has partnered to help build schools in Afghanistan. Steve has had a remarkable life and we cover a lot of ground in this episode, challenge some notions you may have had of the Taliban and finish with some interesting reflections on preparation, opportunity, and the value of embracing risk. We start our conversation starting with some of the foundational moments that would mold his life as a climber, physician, and eventually selfless humanitarian. We hear how a chance encounter with a scientist outside his childhood home in Wyoming led to an interest in geology and the mountain environment, how training with an Olympic 10,000-meter runner triggered an interest in high-altitude physiology and medicine, and how the process of consoling the family of a lost climbing partner on K2 would shift the focus of his endeavors for the years ahead. I grew up on a, a ranch in Wyoming. And although the school system in Wyoming at large is, is quite good because of the land that's been set aside to generate funds for the school system, locally it, it was not good. Now, there was a, a paleontologist from uh, New York uh, who was uh, curator of the Frick Collection, the American Museum of Natural History, who came out to the ranch to collect fossils, and he used to store all his stuff in our barn. And uh, he had gone to a, a private school in Southern California, and he said, this might be a, a nice match. And my brother and I ended up going there, and it really changed the, the course of my life, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, yeah, life some, sometimes is so much, but it's just funny coincidences, right? So it he, is. He had ended up on your family property collecting... It wasn't on our property. It was Nearby. near our property, but he oh, got to okay. know some of the local ranchers and uh -huh. we were... and stored right. what he was collecting on your yeah. property, and that's how you made that connection. Right. How old were you? Well, I was. Uh, uh, like it was school. pre high school. Pre high school. Pre high school. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I ended up uh, majoring in uh, paleontology and uh, geology at uh, Yale. And started a master, did a master's degree at the University of Colorado. So here we yeah, overlap right. again. Yeah, both buffs. Uh, and this <laughs> was back in the the uh, late uh, '60s, and Boulder was an interesting place. And, and, and <laughs> petroleum oil and tear gas were the predominant odors. Topic of a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but I, I was interested in um, glacial geology, and. Uh, I started realizing from from track competitions too uh, that something happened uh, to me when I was climbing physiologically. For some reason, I seemed to have an advantage over others that I couldn't stay with at sea level. But when we got to higher elevation, I, I had a, a different advantage. And this actually came out uh, especially with a guy named Jeff Galloway, mm. who was... Uh, an Olympic uh, 
10,000 meter runner. And uh, I was doing some training with him up in um, Aspen uh, area. And uh, I would struggle to keep up with him on a, a 10 to 15 mile run. But when we got to altitude uh, at about 10, 12,000 feet, he didn't have it anymore. And, it, and I started to get more and more interested in what this was all about uh, because I also had a, a, a background in biology and geology mm -hmm. as an undergraduate. And um, eventually went to, to medical school. And the first year of medical school, I set aside an hour a week or an afternoon a week uh, in the library to start reading up about the impact of high altitude on every organ system. And it was kind of a common thread all through all through physiology, I said, "Oh gosh, this is easy to remember. This is this shifts the dissociation curve in this <laughs> direction and that." And so there was a tie-in with high altitude, and that led to more climbing. And so, would you say? Um, I mean, was it a, a like almost a curiosity of yours to see what you could, what your body could do at altitude, and and. Was that part of the, the, the passion that developed with mountaineering? Uh, right. In, in part, it was. And, yeah. and then uh, I had the wonderful opportunity to join the American Medical Research Expedition on Everest in 1981, uh -huh. yeah. where we sort of started a new genre of expedition. Yeah, After absolutely. that, yeah. Uh, more and more groups had a medical component attached to them. Right. Uh, and that was a great experience, uh, m meeting people like Peter Hackett and Brownie Shaney and John West and working with uh, Dwayne Bloom. And I was particularly interested on that expedition in that setting on why people lose weight at high altitude and did a study on that. Right. Yeah. Did you, um, was there ever a moment where you started to realize on these trips where you were starting to get kind of addicted to it, like being up in the high mountains and thinking about the next peak and then the next peak and what you're going to do next and how you can do it. That that did start to happen. Yeah. And um, what really keyed me into the potential impact on my family, larger than the impact it was already having by being, being gone, gone so much, so yeah. much. Uh, came on uh, K2. This was an American expedition. We were trying to climb the south-southwest pillar uh, or ridge. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was 1986. Okay. And it was a Portland-based expedition. And during the course of the expedition, uh, we were involved in an avalanche that took the lives of, of two of our, uh, actually two of the three people who st got the expedition together, mm -hmm. Al Pennington and John Smolich. And... It took a while for it to set in. Uh, Brian Hukari from Hood River and I found uh, Al's uh, body in the debris, and uh, we never did find uh, John. But uh, busy wasn't really thinking about uh, that he was gone even, that uh, the impact it was going to have. Was just, we were just thinking about getting him out, looking for John, getting out of the, the risk, avalanche risk area ourselves. and. And it wasn't until we were sitting in our uh, uh, Camp One looking over at the moonrise on Broad Peak mm -hmm. and how beautiful it was that, hey, John and Al aren't seeing this. Yeah, they can't see this anymore. They're not going to yeah. see this anymore. And one thing I was careful to do, um, even as we were extracting him, um, 
I knew that his family was not going to have the opportunity for closure with seeing him unless they, well, we ended up burying him there. So I was careful to take a lot of photographs. And when I got home, mm. uh, I had a long conversation with uh, Giselle and uh, invited her to come over and see the photographs if she wanted, and she, she wasn't interested. But his oldest son, Jed, who was 11 at the time, jumped at the chance. Yeah. And so I set them up in a way that I knew exactly what I wanted to say before I put the next slide up to prepare him yeah. for you know, a close-up of his face. And, and uh, Jed went home and told his mom that it was so helpful that then she wanted to come over and do the same thing mm -hmm. and went through it again. But through all this whole experience and then following uh, them for the next several years, I realized the impact that it had on his family. And uh, I, he and I were the only fathers on the expedition. And I began to weigh things in a new way. Right. And waited on the, on the side of feeling like this was narcissistic to continue to put myself at risk for for this goal when uh, what I was risking was them more than myself. seen Steve in quite some time, so sitting there in the camper outside his home, our conversation quickly turned to what he's been up to lately, his work with Green Village Schools in Afghanistan, and the amazing story of Muhammad Khan Haroti. through a very interesting man named uh, Mohammed Khan Haroti. Uh, he's an Afghan-American physician, but he's never been able to practice in this country because he uh, didn't pass the uh, foreign medical graduate exam. Uh, studied for it for a year and missed it by five points. And so instead, he changed careers and uh, went back and, and retrained as a nuclear medicine tech and uh, had a wonderful career with that. But he, uh, one of his early jobs here um, in Portland was working as a cast tech in our emergency department. Oh, is that right? So at St. V's? No, at St. V's. This is when I was working at Best Kaiser. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
And the, so he was a cast tech. He was he, in he the was ER. working as a cast tech. Okay. Yeah. Before that, he worked in a spaghetti factory. <laughs> he was just making ends meet. Yeah. And uh, and a, a real survivor. Yeah. But the first time I met him and had a five minute conversation with him, I realized I'm in the presence of a very unusual human being. He grew up in a camel caravan. Uh, in what is now Afghanistan and Pakistan. The, uh -huh. the Durand line existed at that time, but uh, separating the two countries. The Durand line existed, but the, the, uh, the, it was one uh, e easy passage for them on their camels to go to what we now recognize as Pakistan. And they spend summers in the mountains in Afghanistan, and then in the winters they go down to Pakistan, and they take stuff, uh, hides, other things mm -hmm. uh, with them. Uh, and then his dad would get on the train down to, to New Delhi and uh, sell things, bring back shoes and other things. And, uh, anyway, it, it's just a really unusual man, and uh, he grew up in a village, uh, Shinkale, in uh, Helmand Province, southern Afghanistan. Yeah. And he went back in uh, um, about 1999, I think, and what he saw after bringing his whole family here and, and raising them in, in this setting uh, were kids who were wandering around in poppy fields with brown stains on their clothes and dilated pupils. And yeah. he just felt really bad about what he had left behind and wanted to do something. Right. And yeah, there's some interesting... Um, I was looking at the website and... Um, Actually, let's just go right into the name of the organization that you're working with now is... Green Village Schools. Green Village Schools. Um, there's some interesting economics about that particular region, which you're alluding to a little bit with the dilated pupils and the poppy fields. Uh, right. For those who didn't pick up on that reference, maybe you can uh, highlight a little bit more what, what that means and kind right. of this disparity of, of wealth that's there based on the economics in the region. Well, what happened is the uh, U.S. government, uh, about 1950, started building dams on the Helmand River uh, to irrigate the region for crops. Mm -hmm. And for a long period of time, that's what was growing there. But currently, it's, uh, a lot of it is opium. And a major part of Afghanistan's opium comes out of Helmand province. Yeah, right. And a major part of the world's opium comes out of Afghanistan. And so it's, you know, in fact, they're building factories to process it on site near there in, in Helmand now. So it's created a problem. It's uh, been uh, a support for the Taliban in the past. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like diamonds and, and, and gold in other parts of the world that support uh, rebel groups. So we, uh, he went back in 1999 and then returned while the Taliban were under control. They, they took over in uh, uh, 2001. And um, he, had, he first had conversations with the elders in the village. And they said, well, we can't start a school now. The Taliban won't allow it. And he said, the Taliban speak Pashtun? 
Pashtu. Mm-hmm. We, we speak Pashtu. Let's go have a conversation with him. So he met locally, mm-hmm. and then he was sent to the national office and had a conversation with them. And their equivalent of the Minister of Education said, it's fine with us. Just keep the boys and the girls separate. You, you, you can have girls as well in the, in the schools. So initially it was in his family's compound because his brother still lived there. And um, <clears throat> then um, one of his patients uh, uh, at uh, Kaiser Hospital said, well, uh, what is this uh, school? Are you, are you studying somewhere? No. He said, I'm, I'm supporting a school. He said, well, uh, are you a 501c3? Yeah. And, and uh, a lawyer helped him get a 501c3 status. And... Uh, and then patients and and uh, several physicians in our in our group, uh, including three right now, are on the board. Oh, okay. A board of five. Oh, wow. So, huh. uh, got involved in this project, and uh, I have really in, enjoyed not just working with Muhammad, but seeing the progress that we we've, we've made. Uh, by the time of the first elections, we had uh, girls in the school helping uh, register people. Uh, the school had a uh, wow. population or a enrollment of about uh, 800 in 2008, and then the school was destroyed. But everyone always assumes it was the Taliban. It was not the Taliban. It was probably people from Pakistan. They were or Urdu speakers, mm-hmm. we know. And we got permission to rebuild, and with the help of Afghan Appeal, an organ, a British organization in London that is family members of uh, British NATO uh, troops there, um, has been our major support. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've put uh, ha- helped us build uh, a new school that has about 25 classrooms on the ground floor, and we've just completed another 25 where uh, we still need funding to finish the interiors of those uh, the uh, second-floor rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, had you, um, I guess, before you had started this relationship, had you, had you been to Afghanistan before um, you had met him at work? Um, it was after I had met him at work that I went to yeah. do medical work in Mazari Sharif in uh, the north, coming through Uzbekistan. Okay. So I had had been to Afghanistan, yes. Yeah. Yes. Do you think you were more inspired to go to Afghanistan because of meeting him? Certainly. Just working in the ER here. Certainly. Which is, yeah. you know, it's it's uh, so much of the stories we try to bring out here are, um, you know, people are become enamored with a part of the a world because they go there on adventures or travel. This is a case where you 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 met someone that impressed upon you, but because of your adventurous spirit to go see these places of the world, you then kind of wanted to go see the country yeah. and then subsequently yeah. wanted to help out with his project because of the man that he is. Yeah, unfortunately, I was working at uh, St. Vincent where my colleagues were very supportive of this sort of thing. In fact, I remember, you know, Steve yeah. White, uh-huh. yeah. when I was trying to get people to cover uh, shifts for a month and trade them for the next month, uh, I approached Steve and he said, look, Get as many as you uh, can changed, and uh, I'll cover the rest. Yeah. It was that sort of thing. And that was partly because his wife, uh, Penny, had been involved with Northwest Medical Teams and yeah. Medical Teams International many times overseas. Yeah. The one thing to highlight there is is 
there are all these little unsung helpers right behind the scenes. I think for for, for Steve and I that work as emergency physicians, you know, we work the shift schedule, and a lot of people that don't get credit are like our partners that we ask, and we're like, hey, please, I want to go do this thing. Yes. I only have three weeks to leave. Can you can you swap these shifts with me so I can go and, and, and do this thing? And um, it's it's how they can give, right? It's like they they can't take away time from their families to to go to the Congo or Afghanistan, but they want to empower you to do it. And, and exactly they're actually true. contributing in the way that they can. And it's not as if uh, disaster relief happens with long-term planning. Oh, yeah. No, um, not at all. You know, it may be not three weeks, but one week that they're leaving in one week and you want to want to go. Yeah. So were you involved with Green Village Schools then from the very inception or did you, after your first trip to Afghanistan, did you then come back and, and ask to be involved more intimately with um, kind of the planning or implementation? I guess uh, what time did you start getting more involved with them? I had uh, been to Afghanistan before I got involved with uh, Green yeah, Village Schools. Right. But I was interested in, once I'd heard that Mohammed was getting this together, uh, I wanted to have a conversation with him about it, and, and we sat down and talked. And, and I joined his board in 2004 and have been the chair since 2008. Okay. So, oh, yeah, so well over a decade of involvement then. Yes, and I've, I've known Mohammed for 28, 29 years now. Yeah. We're still working with Afghan Appeal and uh, as much as possible uh, locally uh, to raise money to uh, complete the interiors of the 25 new classrooms. Okay. They can probably be used as they are because they're sheltered. The roofs are up, the walls are, are finished. But it gets cold in Afghanistan, <laughs> that part of <laughs> Afghanistan, and in the winter time, and the wind blows. and. And uh, it would be nice to have some windows and doors. That's great. And so you guys are still accepting donations from the website oh, for yes. that project? Yes. Okay. Well, definitely, for those of you that are interested, we'll, we'll put a link in. And um, uh, if you feel so inclined and generous, it would uh, be awesome to help support that project and, and see some more information about that. As our conversation continues, Steve expands on the politics and influence in this region of Afghanistan. What follows will challenge some of your preconceived notions, finishing with an insightful lesson from Steve on the true meaning of Taliban. It's interesting and really concerning to me that we are now talking about a big um, possibility of adding more troops to the scene and trying to drive the Taliban out of uh, Afghanistan. And that's a process that will have to be repeated numerous times. We got rid of the Taliban on one occasion. Mm -hmm. What we really need to do is include the Taliban 
-hmm. And I think the uh, current president, Ashraf Ghani, has taken uh, the first step by including a, a former Mujahideen, Hekmatyar, who was on our list uh, as a terrorist. Uh, for for a long period mm -hmm. of time, and probably still is. It seems like you brought this up because you you had a, a positive experience that maybe you want to share that uh, working with the the Taliban Ta on this Taliban. project. Taliban, yes. Uh, Mohammed has uh, his foot in lots of different cultures and many and many cultures, and he's able to have a good relationship with the elders in the villages. Uh, with he knows people in parliament he knows personally Ashraf Ghani they were in mm. school at the same time oh, really? in Lebanon years ago mm. uh, so we have a, 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 a good connection with his office um, and with the Taliban and he you know they speak the same language and they come from the same cultural uh, background um, and at one point they had heard that he was uh, uh, proselytizing for Christianity, and they hmm. said they were fear uh, they were afraid for his life really at, yeah, at that yeah, point, yeah. and they said we've got to have a conversation. So he crossed the border into into Pakistan near Quetta, and they had a long conversation with them. And by the end of the conversation, uh, they asked him if we could set up an advanced education center for them and help them become better participants in the future government. After one conversation? Yeah, yeah after one conversation with several of them. Mm -hmm. And um, now the Taliban has taken over about 85% of Helmand province and all of the district where the school is. Um, Nadiali district, it's... Uh, uh, about 10 kilometers from Lashkargah. And now this, this talk of driving the Taliban out, uh, for me, my view is the Taliban <clears throat> are really interested in education as a result of the school. When they first took over Nadiali uh, district, they first came to the elders and to our administrator who was there at the school. And they advised him, please don't let any Taliban uh, members who might want to come into the school in because they, they don't want to do any harm, but they, you know, things might start disappearing, uh, but they would be coming in to, to get out of the sun. It was during the summer. And then they met with the elders and, and encouraged the elders to enroll all of their children, including uh, girls, in, in the school, because they recognize that their own children need to be part of the future, not part of the past. This is the Taliban. The Taliban. Yeah. And there's one Taliban family. Um, just reiterating, with, make sure people are understanding yeah. who you're talking about here, because Good. I think there's, yeah. a, there's a common misconception about their values when right. it comes to education, right? They um, want all of the girls to be involved as well. And there's one uh, Taliban family, five brothers, and Mohammed told me he thinks there are close to 30 girls in that extended family, and they're all enrolled in the school. But I, I should uh, say that Taliban is a, a misused word. Uh, there are many groups of Taliban. There are at least 13 different groups uh, in uh, Pakistan, and there's more than one. It, it's a, a, 
a poorly uh, organized organization, if it is an organization mm -hmm. at all. Uh, and Taliban members in northern Afghanistan might be doing one thing, and but locally, and I think that this is potentially a good model for how to treat this uh, group and bring them into the fold rather than create a fence between us and them and, and try to push them out and, and, their, and their families. Yeah, right, which I think is a good point and also the value of these these experiences when you immerse yourself in the culture because you, the identifiers we have for groups culturally, uh, they're so easy to generalize until you actually show up, involve yourself in that region and that little microculture and, and help identify what they really value. And it's not necessarily identified by the label that you give them. I mean, it's just, it, it'd be no more well-informed to say that all U.S. citizens have the same values, right? Right, right. right. And what they value changes in time depending on how they're treated. And if you want to keep them as they are uh, in other parts of Afghanistan, then military buildup and uh, is just a ticket. Right. <laughs> I don't know if uh, many people know what Taliban means. Uh, it's the plural of Talib, and a Talib is a student. And in their mind, at least in the past, uh, uh, these are Talibs of the madrasas. But now they're Talibs of Western-like schools. Which is what you just so described, right? Yeah. That's the new generation. We, we don't dictate the curriculum. That's dictated by the government. Uh, but when we've uh, had the possibility, we have introduced uh, uh, instruction in English, and that's what they're really asking for. Right. Well, you ran around for years Till it stopped you in your tracks and you've burned a lot of bridges and you want to build them back And if I asked you why you did those things You might never think of one good reason why Though you might try, oh you might try And finally we close with a bit of the philosophical We talk of the balance of time for personal achievement and generous philanthropy the value of cultivating and embracing a little risk in our lives, tempered by the humility of knowing life itself is temporary. You might never think of one good reason why, but don't hate yourself for the things you've done, and don't blame yourself for trying to have fun, and don't live your life living on the run, or you gotta forgive yourself. And be moving on, no, just moving on. Well, in the last year, I had a, a goal last year that was, had nothing to do with international travel. And that was to see if in my 70th year, I turned 70 in December, uh, I could uh, climb a, a million vertical feet, counting bicycling, which was 95% okay. of it. Yeah. And uh, the rest is randonnée skiing, uh -huh. or, but it all has to be going up vertically. Yeah. And uh, I reached the goal on November 2nd all and right. tried to keep it going. So it ended up with uh, a million two hundred fifty thousand. 
and awesome. little more. So that, that that was fun. That that was a, a ridiculous goal. Yeah, but I think it, it brings up a good point that you just can't can't quite take the fight out altogether, yeah. right? It's like there's something that's very addictive about those experiences. Once you've become accustomed to those long days, whether it be on the seat of your bicycle or on your skis or climbing up a mountainside, there's like. This is what I was saying before. It's like you're, there's always some way you're kind of going back, you know. You, you you may push the envelope at a certain way, at a certain yeah. age, at a certain time. Yeah. But the activity doesn't go away, right? And in some ways, I I think the interesting thing for me is it actually gives you energy to give back in these other in these other ways, in these other philanthropic causes and activism and advocacy that you have. In some ways, it's kind of a there's a, eventually you find this nice balance at the time of your life where they they all help support one another, right? Right. Yeah. You go out, you get in the mountains, you have a nice day by yourself, you have a good long day, you get a good exercise, you have this personal fitness goal, you get that done, and then you think to yourself, that was fun, but that was kind of silly and self-indulgent. Let's go to the yeah. Congo. My, my, my goal this year is not to keep a vertical log. Okay, yeah, right. But I've failed. <laughs> the other thing, uh, the impact it had on cycling. Yeah. But this was kind of true before because I've kept a vertical log for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, is I'm often riding with people, and I find when we're climbing a hill, and they're they're looking. Oh God, I hope the top is around the corner. Yeah. And I'm riding there, and I'm thinking. God, I hope the top isn't around the next corner. <laughs> I could climb a little bit more. Yeah. Oh man. Well, um, it's been great to kind of hear your process and some of these life experiences and the way you reflect back on them. Um, I mean, I s- still have so much. Yeah. Well, actually, just to complete the, yeah. the rest of the question you asked yes. is, is future planning. Yeah. That was actually in the past already. <laughs> uh, my most important project right now is the Afghan project. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, um, helping Mohammed in any way I can. He's yeah. uh, fairly fluent in English spoken uh less so writing and so uh um i help him uh he put a ted talk together oh he did uh, okay uh he would come and tell me these stories and they couldn't possibly fit into 15 minutes yeah, right. and so i helped him condense the stories to punch lines Better and, chief. With, and we put together the slides and it was really because he did a great job yeah um so yeah, I w- want to continue with this project, and, and uh, Mohammed uh, g- gave me the best compliment he he could have given me one time. He said, "You write from my heart." That's that really was, sweet. So I, if if that's a possibility, I'll just keep that up. Yeah, that's but a uh, he's really onto something that's that's special over there with the with the Taliban, and and uh, we gotta just keep this going. Great. Well, we've, we've talked a lot about kind of a little bit of self-reflection on what you've done. I, I guess looking back at all of it, is there, I guess, would there be any advice you would give your younger self that you think maybe would make it better or maybe make it easier on you that you wish you had, you had known when you were 20, 30? I don't get the sense that you're a man that has many regrets in his life. I mean, it seems like you're very grateful with all the things you've yes. been able to do. I don't have any regrets because the randomness added quality. <laughs> it really did. The randomness if, added quality, yes. If I had uh, been focused on one thing, 
I wouldn't have recognized an opportunity when it came up, a, a side opportunity. So I, th I think it's not to get focused too early. And, and I've been talking to hmm. medical students who are interested in emergency yeah. medicine in particular. Yeah. Not to get too focused early on in medical school about what it is you want to do until you've had a little more experience. Yeah. And then uh, be open and, and be prepared to jump at challenges. There's uh, luck, but luck is just the uh, interface of preparation and opportunity. You know, like I couldn't have been prepared when this opportunity on, on Everest came if I hadn't had climbing experience and hadn't had a, a medical degree. Uh, I couldn't have had uh, the opportunities uh, working in the Antarctic with the U.S. Geologic Survey if I didn't have the the geology degree, but I did not start going into geology because I thought was thinking, oh, I want to go, go to the Antarctica someday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Best laid plans never quite work out the way we had planned it, right? Yeah, and to j jump at opportunities and learn to recognize an opportunity for what it is. Yeah. What do you think? Actually, that's a, it's another good point. What do you think made you capable of doing that versus some of you, your other colleagues that you worked with over the years, and it's not necessarily a character fault of those other people, but yeah. I think it's more of a values thing yeah. that you operate by. Um, I think it's part of uh, the risk thing that some of us are willing to accept uh, higher levels of risk, hmm. and I think for many people who practice in a hospital where the ambulance delivers the patient and the patient, you either treat them there with lots of fancy equipment or yeah. you admit to an intensive care unit. That, uh, it's risky. They're, they're hesitant to take the risk of working in a medical setting where, oh my God, I don't have anything. Yeah. Uh, what am I going to do? And, you know, part of the risk is you have to accept the eventuality that people who would have lived in the U.S. with whatever you're seeing are not going to live. Right. I also, from that medical context, I, I also like to thank what relieves me a lot from a sense of like 100% responsibility is realizing that, you know, I am, I'm just kind of an agent in this, this path right now. Like something happened to this person well before I saw them, before they showed up in the ER. Uh, I'm going to do my best and try to serve this situation. But it's an illusion to think that you have 100% control over that situation, oh, yeah. right? It's a total illusion. Control. And that, that actually, once that hits for you, I think it's very liberating. Um, I think the other thing that paralyzes people, you talked a, a little bit about risk in, in, in the medical context of wanting to have those safeguards of taking care of somebody you know, in a first world industrialized hospital with all the consultants and specialists available. I think there's also just, you know, lifestyle risk. Uh, people don't like the uncertainty of uh, giving up on a, a level of income that they've become accustomed to or, um, you oh, know, that's or, a big, that's know, that's an a big important one, right? Because yeah. that's opportunity. But I think there's something when you sp spoke of risk, I, I, I look back. I mean, there's certainly something about both of us, the reason why we're sitting here and we we, uh, we resonate about some of these themes and the things that we've done is that we've taken risks well before medicine. Right. <laughs> and they had this really profound value for us. 
like this richness to our life. And was it risky for you to go to K2? Absolutely. Were there some, were there some tragedy that happened there? Absolutely. But was it a real profound experience that made you who you are? Absolutely. And there's, and therefore it created a lot of value or the rich life lessons that go in the Congo and then ended up doing work that you didn't even anticipate doing before you left. But yeah. That was a risk you signed up for. <laughs> you I think back. there's something else that's important, and this is uh, in some ways a, a Buddhist concept, uh -huh. that uh, how um, temporary uh, yeah. we are. And at some point, it's important to view, think of yourself as an event rather than an existence. Mm. We don't exist as much as we happen. And you sort of happen with what's next to you and... And these things that you do, these events that you make for yourself in your life. Right? Yeah. Right. But, well, you are the... The event. Yeah. The event. Yeah. Right. Don't look away from what you've done It's all a part of growing up And you might regret the race you've run Okay, y'all. Well, that was so cool to hear that conversation again. Whether you are a climber, a physician, healthcare worker, humanitarian, or passionate explorer, I hope that the event that has been Steve's life resonates with some of you out there and motivates you to prepare for the next adventure and giving back. To hear more about Steve's latest work, go to greenvillageschools.com. Or you can check out the show notes at our site, theadventureactivist.org. Speaking of our organization, we've been busy helping to plan a conference here at home in Sun Valley with our partners at the Sun Valley Institute. Each year here, approximately 250 leaders and innovators from business, government, philanthropy, sports and entertainment, academia, the arts, gather for three days of inspiration and action to share strategies, collaborate, and drive courageous leadership in an effort to accelerate the transformation to sustainable, equitable, and secure, resilient economies and communities. A lot of big names on the docket, including Microsoft, Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, Hewlett Packard, Rolling Stone, The Economist, and more. And this year at the Adventure Activist, we are happy to bring Patagonia, the Wilderness Society, Protect Our Winners, and the Five Point Film Festival to the fold. To see more about the conference, go to sunvalleyforum.com. Better yet, if you want to keep up to date on what we're up to behind the scenes, go to our site, sign up for our newsletters, follow us on Instagram at The Adventure Activist, or you can find us on Twitter. It's all there on the website. Okay, usual business. Thanks to Evan Phillips for helping with the production of this episode. We connected through his amazing podcast, The Fern Line, about climbing in the great ranges of Alaska. Please check out his podcast, or even better, purchase some of his music on iTunes. And thanks for listening to episode 11. We do hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site, on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. There may be another conversation in there that resonates with you. If this or prior episodes sparked conversation or inspired you on your next adventure project, please let us know. You know, a simple way to support this podcast is to give us a good review. Click some stars our way, or even better yet, share with some of your friends. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all, and keep adventuring. Cause they'll make you happy when you're old.
and remember all the good things you were told And don't lose the memories you hold And I'll take the time to understand If you take the time to be my friend I can be the ears if you'll be the sound I'll be the ground You can be the feet and I'll be the ground You can be the feet and I'll be the ground